0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it to Malachi chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the chair in front of you, underneath the chair in front of you. and. I'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word open before you as we continue our journey through this last book of the Old Testament, short book, the prophet Malachi, God's last words to his people before about 400 years of silence, before Jesus arrives on the scene in the Gospels. If you're visiting with us for the first time today, I'm really glad you're here. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors. I'd love to meet you after the service if you're in the army particularly not that I don't like civilians as much as I like army people but I came here in the army 25 years ago and I'm grateful for what you do for us and all of us are and I'd love to meet you afterwards our custom is primarily to just work through books of the Bible and so we're right in the middle of this short Old Testament book Malachi the topic today is a severe one it's marriage and God's indictment against the people of God in the Old Testament for their faithlessness in marriage. So let me read verses 10 through 16 our text today and then then we'll get into the text and pray. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one? And do not be faithless. Well, let me pray. Lord, help us with this word. Jesus says that you will sanctify your people with your word. Sanctify us now, Lord. Help us. Make us more like Jesus. People that have come into this room this morning that do not know Jesus. Save them, I pray. Or do your work through your word, by your spirit, for the glory of your name and for the good of your people, and for the salvation of all those that you intend to save today. Lord, I pray that you'd do it. We humble ourselves underneath your word, in Jesus' name, amen. My plan is to work through this text, kind of verse by verse, and explain it, and then I want us to think a little bit more universally about what the Bible says think about truths about marriage. Then I want to try and answer some practical questions that come up as a result of of this text. This is not a comprehensive teaching in just one sermon on the issue of marriage and divorce. We will certainly get into many issues regarding those two topics, but this isn't a comprehensive discussion on that. Uh, We have done more thorough teachings on this in the past when we went through first corinthians you can find that on our website when we looked at first corinthians chapter seven and we looked at marriage and divorce in the gospel my hope is to explain this text and then to apply it to our life as a local church but i want to offer a pastoral word before we begin this this message and this this look at this text i realized that that the issue of marriage and divorce is a very painful one for just about everybody in this room to one degree or another. We have all been very likely touched by the pain of divorce, whether personally in our own lives or secondarily, maybe the lives of our parents or loved ones, that, that their divorce has greatly impacted us. There are people in this room who have been divorced And there are people in this room who have been the offended party in the divorce. There are those that have been the guilty party in the divorce. And there are people all in between. And I I want you to know that as we work through this text this week, as I've been studying this text and have been praying, I have been thinking about you and all of the many circumstances that people in this room may find them in. And I want you to know that the best way we can serve ourselves this morning is to clearly understand what the Lord's Word says and then to humble ourselves underneath that Word and then to receive the truth of God's Word and then to bask in the grace of God's Word. Uh, Just a moment ago we sang this song and I, I thought you know that is the life anthem of a Christian. We sang our sins they are many but His mercy is more." Now, I'm putting all of my eggs into that basket, that that sentence is true. Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. If that's not true, let's all go home, but it is true. So what is this passage saying? Let me give you a brief summary before we work back through it. Remember the problem at this time in the life of Israel was that they were back in the city of Jerusalem still in captivity rebuilding the city having rebuilt the city and the temple and the problem with God's people at this time is lackadaisical worship they were going through the motions their worship as we read in chapter one was polluted by terrible spiritual leadership of pitiful priests who were just going through the motions, and, and the people were going through the motions, giving God second best and third best, giving them a God a lame animal or diseased fruit in their offerings. And it was an indication that worship was the problem. They were not fulfilling their purpose as God's people to be a city on a hill through which He would draw all the nations to Himself. So the point here in verses 10 through 16 of Malachi 2 is that they were not able to worship God and they were weeping at the altars because God was not receiving their worship. And the prophet, God speaks to the prophet and he says that in this instance, there are two reasons why God was not accepting their worship. And those two reasons are very clear. First is that the men of Israel were marrying the daughters of foreign gods. We're going to look at that in a moment. And then secondly, the men of Israel were faithless to their wives and were divorcing them. And those are the indictments that the prophet, God is speaking to through the prophet to the people of God. So let's work through this passage and then we'll settle on some global truths about marriage that I think are clear from the scriptures that the, this passage points us to. Verse 10 The prophet says, have we not all one father? Has God not created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Note here that Israel's forgetfulness about who God was to them and who they were in relationship to one another because of God led to their faithlessness to one another. So right theology leads to right living and they had bad theology. They were forgetting the fatherhood of God. They were forgetting that God created them. And it was this vertical problem was impacting all of their horizontal relationships. And even worse, it was causing them to profane the covenant of their fathers, this, this covenant that God had made with the people of God. And in our text, it uses the word Judah or Israel. Several times at this point in the life of Israel, those words are interchangeable. It's just meaning God's Old Testament people. They were profaning the covenant that God had made with them. We don't use this word profane much, but the sense of it is to trample over, to defile the goodness of God towards his people because of the way they were acting in marriage. Verse 11 Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned, Judah speaking collectively as the people of God, Judah has profaned the sanctuary of God which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. And in response to this, he says in verse 12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob. In other words, to, to remove these people from fellowship with God's people Any descendant of the man who does this who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So because they were intermarrying with these daughters of foreign gods, it was interrupting their worship of God and God says, cut that man and his family off and any offering that he brings to me is invalid. I won't see it because he is intermarrying with foreign gods. Daughters of foreign gods. Now, of course, he's not speaking about people that are some demigods. He's talking about women who were part of Gentile people groups that worshiped foreign false gods. And numerous times in the Old Testament, God warned His people against marrying foreigners who worshiped other gods. Now it's important for us to consider this and understand this, That at this, what's going on here, God is not making an ethnic statement He's making a spiritual statement. This verse and others like it have been used tragically and wickedly and sinfully in the history of the church to to endorse a kind of ethnic division or even racial superiority or even wicked, heinous teachings against people of two different ethnicities marrying each other. That is not what God is concerned about here. What he's concerned about is that his people, whom he was fashioning and forming and sanctifying, he knew that they were so spiritually weak in their theology that if they married the daughters of these pagan false god worshipers, that his people would be more influenced by them and would give themselves over to the God the gods of these foreign people, rather than bringing them to faith in the one true God. So this is a spiritual fence that God is drawing, not an ethnic fence. And we see that not only in the Old Testament in places, but we see it in the New Testament. We see, for example, Ruth, a Moabitess, who is not a Jew, is held up as a wonderful picture of redemption and God's grace. And she becomes, through faith, part of God's people and actually in the line of Jesus himself and then we see in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 where the apostle Paul says that here they're in the gospel in the covenant believing people of God there is neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor barbarian or Scythian but all are in Christ and and one in Christ so friends the division here is not ethnicity the division that God is interested in here is in spiritual purity and fidelity. Because how can God's people be a witness to the nations if they're giving themselves over to the false gods of the nations? Friends, the same is true, just a little point of pastoral application, the, point, the, the same is true for us today. I think clearly we can take from this that a Christian hear me on this, a Christian should not marry an unbeliever. A Christian shouldn't date an unbeliever. Because if you date an unbeliever, you're putting yourself in a position, you're you're putting yourself, you're, you're, you're putting yourself in a position to where it becomes very difficult emotionally once you become attached to that person to stop that train when it gets going on the tracks. It's like you're putting yourself on a sled on the other side of a mountain and the snow is slick. And it will become very difficult to stop that sled. Listen to what Paul says in, in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, he's not speaking specifically about just marriage here, but it clearly applies. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? There is no closer relationship than marriage. There's no clearer picture of what it means to be yoked with another person than to be married to that person. The two, we'll see later, become one. There's this beautiful picture of what marriage is meant to portray. And Paul is saying here that there's no way that a believer who's walking in light can join themselves in, in a type of deep, yoking relationship with an unbeliever. And so the same admonition that's going on in Malachi is, 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 it applies to us today. Friends, I think there are several clear implications from this. One is that marriage, marriage, marriage is for God primarily, not for us. It's not merely about our earthly joy and compatibility. Marriage, the yoking of two people to become one, and we'll get to this in a moment, is meant to actually portray something far greater than just earthly happiness. I think also that this means that there should be much wisdom for a young person who lives in community, that you should submit your life to the wisdom of the believing community that you find yourself in and you should get oversight from elders pastors parents to help you think through who you are going to marry because one thing i've noticed as a pastor for the past 15 years of this church is that in this world we live in of many different churches and many different beliefs and people from coming from just lots of 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 people from different places and different convictions is that sometimes, in particular, a person who's in a relationship will want to sort of act like they're a Christian because they have fallen in love with this person. They, they unwisely started to date, and now the unbeliever, in hopes of kind of maintaining the relationship, will start acting like a believer to get the believer to think that they're truly a believer. And then all of a sudden, you're, you're, a, a young lady might be quickly marrying a guy who isn't, truly a believer even though he said he's a believer and then then that becomes evident five or ten years later on in the marriage and we all understand how much pain and difficulty that can cause. And much of it is because there wasn't a lot of wisdom being considered before we entered into that marriage. Believers should not date and they should not marry unbelievers. Friends, hear my heart on this. I I realize how difficult it is in our culture. I mean, I'm sure it's been difficult in every culture, but it's, it's difficult in ours. We've made an idol out of marriage. There is tremendous pressure. My heart goes out. I think there's tremendous pressure, in particular, on young women. We have made an idol out of marriage. All these silly, stupid shows on TV about picking out dresses and the perfect wedding. Friends, it's borderline wicked what it does to a girl's soul, and it puts so much pressure on a young lady to have this fairy tale, Instagram, awesome wedding where everything looks like it's a countryside and there's no mosquitoes and nobody's sweating and you know every all the bridal party looks awesome and you get your picture and it just looks great, and, and we've created this almost. It's this false worship culture where everything's about the wedding day so that you can get good pictures that you can post on Facebook and there's no consideration given to the actual true spiritual compatibility of the next 60 years. And and young people in our culture are being fed this garbage. And they're being fed it with these silly shows about Brides and dresses and even Christians are buying into this and then and then just don't even get me started on these crazy shows Like The Bachelor and Bachelorette, which it's like watching that friends. This is not funny It is like taking in spiritual poison When you watch those things it tunes your heart Into a view of human relationship that is from the pits of hell And if you think, young lady or young man, that you can watch those shows and not be affected by it, friends, you are not walking in wisdom. So believers should not marry unbelievers. They shouldn't date unbelievers. And I want to sympathize with how broken our culture is. Back to our text, verse 13. 13. Now he gets into marriage and divorce. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So again, there's a worship problem. They can't approach God. They're crying at his altar because they realize God's not accepting their worship. And why isn't he accepting their worship? He answers in verse 14. But you say, why does he not because the Lord was witness, was, was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So the second thing that God is indicting the people for, first was intermarrying spiritually with unbelievers. And now he's saying to these men in Israel at the time, that you're being faithless. You're, you're giving up on the covenant that God was a witness to. And you're leaving. You're divorcing. You're trading in the wife of your youth. Maybe for a, a newer, younger model. And you're profaning the covenant that God has made with you. And there's this interplay. There's this clear link between the covenant that God makes with his people and then the earthly covenant that a man makes with his wife. And there's a kind of reflection there. God is saying, I've made a covenant with you. In the Old Testament, he often calls Israel his adulterous bride. And he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then he gives marriage as a gift, as a covenant, as a kind of witness to his covenant with his people. And they were profaning it, which was causing the covenant that God would make with all those who would come to him be obscured to an onlooking world. And God was saying that because you're doing this, it is is breaking your covenant with me. You're not able to worship him anymore. In verse 15, he says, Did he... Not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union. He's speaking about a man and a woman in marriage. So he's asking a question, a rhetorical question. Did he not make them one, meaning the man and wife in the covenant of marriage, with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless. To the wife of your youth. So here in verse 15 we see a clear, a clear allusion to the shadow, to a shadow of the theology of, of marriage and the rest of the Bible. God brings two people together and he makes them one. And he puts his spirit in them, he joins them together and he has purposes for them. First to be a display of his glory, and we'll get into that in a second. And then to to produce godly offspring. God makes a man and a woman one in marriage. We read it earlier. Robert read from Genesis 2. Let me read verse 24 again. Genesis 2 verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, cleave, cling to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And Jesus repeats this in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 19. We'll refer to this text, I think, again in this message. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 5. The Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered in verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, verse 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We're going to get to this more clearly in a moment, but what's happening in marriage is God is bringing a man and a woman, and He's bringing them together. In fact, that's the way He has anatomically made the male and female body to fit together, so that when they come together, they are picturing a oneness which we'll see in a moment, is actually a picture of the gospel itself because Jesus in the Bible is pictured as the heavenly groom who comes and joins himself spiritually to his bride and unites himself with her through her faith in him and his salvation of them. And so the oneness of a man and a woman in marriage, even physically, is meant to be an echo, a sign pointing to God's oneness, his covenant, With his people and in the old testament this idea of covenant is so rich it's this agreement between two parties and the 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 way kings in the old testament would strike a covenant is that they would kill an animal and they would slay the animal and put its carcass one half of it on one side and one half of it on the other side and they would walk through the middle of this slain animal cut in two, and the symbolism of walking through the two halves of this animal is that these two kings entering a treaty or a covenant would say to one another that we're walking through this arm in arm, and if I break covenant, may it be done to me what we have done to this animal. That's how serious this agreement was. It wasn't a contract, it was till death do us part in that sense. That's what's happening. And God It's saying here that I've entered into a covenant with you. And he enters into a covenant with with Abraham in, in Genesis. And we actually see a beautiful picture that he doesn't walk through the covenant, walk through to slain animal, or a, a carcass split in two with Abraham, God walks through it by himself, which is a picture of God saying that I will uphold both ends of this covenant, and when you break it, I will die, and I will never break it. And that's a picture of the gospel itself, that when we break covenant with God, Jesus dies for us. He's telling his people here that There's something profound going on in marriage. It's more than just societal order. It's more than just our happiness. God has brought us together as man and woman to be a picture of the gospel itself. And what was God seeking? Godly offspring. He's wanting to fulfill his promise to Abraham that he would create a people. In the Old Testament, obviously, that was a kind of shadow of ethnic Jewness, in the New Testament, we see that fulfilled in the reality of spiritual jew and the fact that we are, 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 are trusting in God through Christ and we become godly offspring as people. And God wants to populate and subdue the earth with His people. God was seeking godly offspring. Let me say just as a kind of secondary uh, point here is that, friends, just... Just this one statement, I think, in verse 15 is a clear witness about something that is very, very misunderstood and controversial in our culture today. One of the clear purposes of marriage is offspring. That does not mean that a couple that is infertile is not a godly couple. It means, though, that part of God's design for bringing a man and woman together is to procreate and create godly offspring. Just that verse right there is a clear witness against this sinful idea of homosexual marriage. And I say homosexual marriage in quotes because I don't think there truly is anything legitimately called homosexual marriage. And for people that are struggling and wrestling with same-sex attraction, this church is a safe place where you can be loved and cared for, and where we can link arms with you and help you fight against your sin and pursue Christ. Just like we want to link arms with heterosexual sinners who are in heterosexual sin outside of marriage, but homosexual marriage is no marriage at all. It's an affront to the design of God in humanity. And he says, he warns them here in 15, verse 15, guard yourselves in your spirit. Guard yourself that none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Be attentive, he's saying, watch over yourself. Pay attention to your life. And don't be faithless to the wife of your youth. More on that in, in just a moment. Verse 16. Now, verse 16 is one of the most difficult verses to translate in all of Malachi. Maybe even in the Old Testament. There's lots of ink that's been spilled on this verse. In our English Standard Version that we use primarily here, we translate it as the translator's Render it as for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. But other translations, maybe most notably the King James Version and others, translate it simply as God hates divorce. Now there's good reasons for both translations, but I think both of them are are true. Either way, we're reading from the ESV, either way... God hates divorce. In one translation, the focus is on God's hatred of divorce. In the other, the focus is on the man who seems to be hating his wife and is divorcing her for that reason. But either way, we end up with the same thing in that he is covering his garment with violence, what is that saying? That's a kind of Hebrew expression to say, and listen to me, I say this with compassion because I know that there are people in this room who are in the middle of suffering this or have suffered it or have been the perpetrator in this or the victim in this, but this is what the word of God says. It says that divorce covers a person's garment with violence. That's a Hebrew picture of how we put on a coat of pain and blood this garment of of the priest sacrificing animals and it would be a a garment that would be discarded and you wouldn't ever go into the presence of god with this blood-drenched butcher's coat in a sense it's the butcher's coat that's covered with blood and that's the picture and he says when a person is divorcing themselves from the wife of their youth it's like they're spiritually causing violence to their soul and they're covering themselves with, a, with an apron stained with blood of the violence that they're committing against the person that they're divorcing. That's the picture that's going on in verse 16. And so what does he conclude? He says again, just like he said at the end of verse 15, he says, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless, guard yourselves. This is just a clear word. I speak particularly to men in this room, and certainly this applies to both genders, but I speak particularly to men. Guard yourselves in your spirit. From the wiles of the enemy, the devil prowls about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Our culture will constantly put images in front of you that will lure you away from the wife of your youth. You can't drive a mile in this town and not see a billboard for a divorce lawyer that is lying to you about some easy, no-fault divorce. And, And the prophet here is saying to us, guard yourselves, protect yourselves, protect your eyes. Do not be faithless. Do not give yourself over to the ways of this world Be careful what you watch. Be careful what you do. Be careful what you give yourself over to because you will get yourself into a a kind of riptide that will carry you out to sea and that is stronger than your will to resist when you go down that road too far. Guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. I pray now that the Holy Spirit would just take that sentence and and right now bring somebody back from the edge of the cliff. It may be you. Right now, your heart may be pounding. Your pulse rate may be up because you know that the Holy Spirit is putting His finger on you. Friends, dear brothers or sisters, If that is you, guard yourself. Run, run from the edge of that cliff. Run to a brother or sister that you know you can trust before you leave this room today and tell them, help me, help me, help me guard myself. This is something you cannot do alone. Run to that person. Do not let the sun go down on this day. Don't leave this building without clinging to God through another believer in this room and asking crying out for help because you are being sucked out to sea and the tide is stronger than you are. But God and His people, greater is He that's in us than he that's in the world. And God will use this verse, this word. God changes lives with sentences. And this sentence may be the very thing, it may be the lifeboat that, that is thrown out to you right now that you can grab a hold of and be reeled into safety and to God's goodness in your life. So, two truths about marriage as we consider this text. And friends, these are not. These are not complicated, and I think the first really leads to the second in in a way I think they're very much related and two truths about marriage, and then I want to ask some important questions that come up from this text. First, first truth is that marriage is a covenant established by God between a man and a woman. Every word in that sentence I've thought deeply about. Marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. That's why we take marriage vows when we say, for better, for worse. There's not a marriage in this room, I dare say there's not a marriage that, in the history of marriage, that at times has not been challenged and threatened. There's not a marriage where some expectation from both sides have not been unfulfilled. And our world will teach you that if your spouse is not upholding their end of the bargain, then you are now free from that contractual agreement. Friends, that is a lie. That is not a biblical picture of marriage. You did not enter into that relationship so that your needs would be met that clearly is a secondary. I'm not saying that that's not a good thing, that I'm I'm all for happy marriages, but there's something more primary, primary going on here, and it is the display of the covenant of God between a man and a woman. It's a covenant. Which leads us to the second truth about marriage that flows directly from that is that marriage is meant to display the gospel itself. This is why God is so serious about divorce, because marriage obscures the picture that it is painting to the world. This is the primary purpose of marriage. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 5, and this is the longest and I think most theological and clearest description or theology of marriage that we have in all of the Bible. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Let me read it. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now let me pause there and say that I realize this word submit in our culture is often sinfully abused. And what's going on here is that a man is to be the head of his wife, not in an authoritarian way, not in a sinful way, not in a domineering way, but in the same way that Christ is the head over the church. He's to lay down his life and serve his wife, just as Christ has served us, and to that type of humble, selfless, Christ-like leadership, the woman is called to submit. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, listen to this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ says the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, and he's quoting again Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And verse 32 says this, in case we're wondering what Paul is ultimately referring to here, he says, verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so you see, Paul has tied together for us in, in verse 32, the whole, the primary, the central, the foundational purpose of the human relationship of marriage. Is it for societal order? Yes. Is it for procreation? Yes. Is it for our joy? Yes. Is it for emotional attachment and pleasure? Of course, all of those things. But more primarily, God takes a man and a woman, and the man is like playing the earthly role in a sense, this object lesson, this sermon to the world, he's playing the role of Christ and the woman is playing the role of the church. And just as Christ has joined himself and laid down his life for his bride, given himself up for her, now leads her, protects her, and serves her by dying for her and washing her and sanctifying her, the husband is to lay down his life and love his wife in that way, so that earthly marriage between two believers goes far beyond just a picture of earthly happiness, but it points to eternity and the gospel itself. And friends, even as I say that, we all know that none of our marriages live up to this. Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. Even as we seek to display the gospel to the onlooking world, we need the grace of the gospel to do the displaying, don't we? That's the beautiful thing about the grace of God. It supplies what it requires. And it's a never-ending cycle of grace upon grace upon grace. And the reason why marriage is so central, the reason why some of you may think, well, Christians just have a a strange fascination and and hang up with marriage. And admittedly, we often make an idol out of marriage. Let me say to those that are single in this room that being married is not the epitome of human existence. God has called some in 1 Corinthians, as we read, to singleness, and he presents singleness as a gift that will allow you to serve God more more fervently because you're not being distracted by family matters. Jesus was single, and he was the most fulfilled and satisfied person who ever lived. And so singleness is not a curse, but if we are going to be married, if we're going to understand marriage biblically, we need to understand the theology and the point of marriage, which is the gospel itself. And so marriage is meant to display the gospel. Let me conclude with this. Some important questions: What should I do if I'm married to an unbeliever? This is a common question that comes up because we realize we read here that you shouldn't marry an unbeliever, but what if you find yourself already married to an unbeliever? What should you do? I think the Christian in that situation should stay married. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. Listen to First Corinthians chapter seven, starting in verse twelve. Paul says, "To the rest, I say." I, not the Lord. and He's not all of a sudden stepping out of inspiration at this moment. He's just saying that Jesus, in his teaching on marriage, didn't address this. So now he's saying that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So, verses 12 and 13 clearly tell us that we should stay in that marriage. The situation in Corinth is that two people, two pagans, two unbelievers, heard the gospel. Paul comes, plants a church in Corinth. The situation is, is that one person in the marriage becomes a Christian, and now they're wondering... Well, Paul says not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. What should I do? And Paul is saying, no, stay there, remain in that marriage. And then the question is, we shouldn't be, be you know, joining ourselves to these other people because that would somehow make us unholy. That's the thinking there. And Paul says in verse 14, no. He's not saying in verse 14 that the unbelieving husband is all of a sudden somehow miraculously saved just because they're married to a believer. He's saying that it is not unlawful for that believing spouse to remain into a, in a relationship with the unbelieving spouse. They are, in a sense, sanctified. They are, it is okay to remain in relationship with them in the hopes that God might save them. That's what, Paul, that's what Peter says in First Peter chapter 3. Listen, listen to these words from First Peter, First Peter 3. And I've used this verse many times in speaking to women in this congregation who are married to unbelievers. Peter says, likewise, chapter 3, verse 1, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So he's saying, and friends, is this not hard? Come on, this is hard. He's saying, hang in there. And we need to be a church that just is full of people that will come around believers who find themselves married to unbelievers. You should not divorce that unbeliever. You should stay in that marriage. Question two, are there ever biblical grounds for divorce? We've seen clearly in Malachi 2 that that God hates divorce, that divorce does violence to our own souls and to the souls of those around us. But what does the Bible say more generally about divorce? Are there ever biblical grounds for, the divorce, for a divorce? And the answer to that is, is yes. We see in the New Testament two reasons, adultery, chronic, unrepentant adultery, and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Let me read again from Matthew chapter 19. Verses, I'll start at verse 3 again. And the Pharisees came up to him, to Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And he said to them, because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So in other words, the law that God gave Moses, much of the law was not just an ideal of human relationships. It was God just governing and and regulating the brokenness of humanity. It's not an endorsement of divorce. It's just the law helping the leaders of God's people deal with the inevitability of the fallenness of man. But look at what he says in verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so Jesus, recognizing how difficult it is for people to remain in relationships where there is this unrepentant infidelity allows for a biblical divorce there's much that we could say about this again this is not a comprehensive sermon on this issue but i think that this i think implied in this is is after many attempts to reconcile and a kind of chronic unrepentance adultery does not have to end in divorce but jesus realizing how challenging that can be for the offended party allows for it. And then the second reason that we see in the New Testament, and the only other reason as a biblical grounds for divorce, is abandonment, spiritual abandonment by an unbeliever. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, But, this is right after we just read a little while ago, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, meaning the Christian, is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, if somebody walks out on the marriage, you obviously can't stop them. And so, after a certain point of posturing yourself in the hopes of reconciliation, it's clear that that person is never coming back. At some point, that person is free and not enslaved And God has called that person to peace. And so the two and only two grounds for divorce are adultery and abandonment. Question three, can a divorced person remarry? Well, this is a complicated question, and I think that it requires much more thoughtfulness than we have time to give in this brief moment. But let me just answer quickly that I think that the Bible does say that the offended party, the innocent party, the one who's been sinned against, that there is the possibility for remarriage for that person at some point in the future with much godly counsel. We just read First Corinthians 7 that says that at some point there you are not enslaved. God has called you to peace. I think And clearly the history of even conservative biblical interpretation throughout the ages has been that at some point with the counsel of the local body of believers, that at some point after posturing themselves in the hope of reconciliation, that a believing spouse who's been offended and abandoned by their spouse is at some point free to pursue marriage again. And I think Jesus says this in Matthew 19 verse 9 that we just read. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So I think that the possibility of marrying another on the grounds of sexual immorality is a possibility for the innocent party. The guilty party, that's a much more complicated question. I think a person who has committed adultery or has abandoned a spouse and then they, they find themselves, they, you, may re, you may be in that situation and you have, because of your actions, your marriage has dissolved the question of whether or not you can remarry i think is a much more complicated and one that again requires much more thorough analysis than we're allowed to do in this moment the more the more primary question though is your heart and your repentance you, you in that situation must find yourself repenting and and you must not bank on god's goodness the biggest issue here is not whether or not you can get remarried It's about whether or not you truly understand how you have profaned the covenant of God and it's your heart receiving forgiveness in that moment. And there are people in this room who I know fall into this category. And right now the question is, have you pleaded to God for forgiveness? And have you asked for Him where your sins are many to bring mercy which is far greater? And finally, what if I've made a mess of marriage? All of this. What if I've made a mess of my life? Can I be forgiven? Friends, yes. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Yes, divorce is forgivable. Yes, it is unbiblical divorces, unbiblical remarriages, all of that, God can and does forgive it. There is nothing that we repent of that God cannot forgive. Yes, we can be forgiven. Praise the Lord. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. But friends, a word of pastoral caution. We can't look forward into our life and say, oh, God will forgive me. So I'll do this knowing that God will forgive me. Friends, that is presuming on the kindness of God. Repentance is not something that we can store up for ourselves and grant ourselves in the future. Repentance is a gift that must be given to us by God. And so a person can't willfully commit a sin and disobey God and walk away from their marriage for unbiblical reasons banking on the forgiveness that they assume will be there. The moment that you start to disobey God in such a serious way, you give your heart over to a kind of hardness and you cannot presume on the kindness of God. And so the word to you today, pastorally, is I'm pleading with you if you are on the brink. If you are on the brink of this, I'm pleading with you pastorally. guard your spirit guard your spirit and roll up your sleeves and give yourself to fellowship give yourself to repentance give yourself to the grace of God and fight for marriage even though it's hard because it pictures something far greater friends I know this is a hard text and a hard issue and this is why we preach through the Bible because we can't skip over verses like this. A pastoral confession for you. Uh, on text on Sundays like this, I think about, oh, there's going to be people visiting the church for the first time this Sunday. Man, I just, I just wish it was a happier message. And when I think like that, I have to rebuke myself because I realize that my hope is more in man than it is in the sufficiency of God's word. And this is God's word and it's good for us. Maybe you have a happy marriage. Thank God for it. And don't look down the end of your nose at people who are in trouble. Don't be judgmental, friends. Don't, don't look shocked at the world or even people in the church who are struggling. Don't criticize with a callous spirituality, roll up your sleeve, have tears in your eyes, and help some people. Maybe your marriage is on the brink. Oh, friends, guard your spirits and do not be faithless. Get help, get help, get help. Maybe you've made a mess of your life. You do not need to walk around with a D stamped on your forehead for the rest of your life. God's grace is greater than our sin. Receive the forgiveness of God and live for the glory of God and use even your broken past to help other, other sojourners make it all the way home. And let's roll up our sleeves and live in this kind of gospel-centered way for the glory of God and the good of our souls. Let me pray. Lord, take these words and use them for your glory and the good of your people. If there's anything that I've said that was not well stated or maybe even wrong, let those words fall to the ground. Anything that was from heaven, from your word, inspired by your spirit, may it stick fast to our hearts and make us more like Jesus. Lord, I imagine there were points in in this message today when some pulse rates went up. Lord, put your finger on those points and do what only you can do. Help us all guard our spirits and not be faithless. Lord, help us bring glory to you in our marriages, in our singleness, in our redemption. In Jesus' name, amen.